You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, it's John Spiros of Vet and Rebecca Rosenthal. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. Nice to see you. Good to see you. So you had the chance to hang out with a bunch of Tove co-hosts a few weeks ago. Yes, it was really fun. We missed you a lot. Sorry that you were not feeling well and then couldn't be there, but hopefully we'll all get together soon. Yes. Did you hatch any ideas for the the last phase of the podcast? (laughs) We were doing a lot more just learning, hanging out by the pool, you know, that kind of stuff. That's sort of next Good Place episode is hanging out by the pool at the uh, the funerals episode. So, oh yeah, okay, good. <laughs> it was like yeah. that, but minus the funerals. Minus the funerals, definitely. <laughs> so we have a sponsor for our podcast, as I mentioned a couple episodes ago for the first time. The Light Lab podcast is hosted by Eliana Light, Rabbi Josh Warshawski, and Cantor Ellen Dreskin. And they take pieces of our liturgy, our Jewish prayers, and our services and bring them to light. And they also bring in other educators and artists and leaders who are playing with prayer in fascinating ways. And what they want to do is to make Jewish liturgy and prayer practice accessible and meaningful to all seekers. And they are at lightlab.co or anywhere you get your podcasts. Well, I I will tell you, John, that Cantor Ellen Dreskin runs the Shabbat program at Central Synagogue for our religious school kids. And She has an incredible following of people who love her and think she does all of those things for worship. And knowing the other two co-hosts a little bit, I am sure that it is just like an incredible journey through worship and music and that it will be incredibly accessible to anyone who wants to listen to it. Yeah, and Eliana has been here at Temple Beth Abraham on a few occasions for high holidays and Shabbat, and they take up something which could be very serious and then is certainly prayer, and they do make it fun and playful to engage in. And if you're interested in that kind of thing and want to experience that in engaging an uplifting way, check out the Light Lab. So give us the summary of the episode we're going to talk about. Sure. So the title of this episode is Help is Other People. It was written by Dave King and directed by Beth McCarthy Miller. On the last day of the year-long experiment, our gang is planning a final party, and Eleanor suggests that they should try something to get the new humans some last-minute points. Simone reveals that she has been collecting data to demonstrate that Eleanor and Michael are only interested in their small group and that they are not in the good place, but rather in some experiment. John reveals that Jianyu is Jason, and Brent says that Eleanor and Michael told him that there is a best place where he will be going. Simone and Chidi search the office and discover the whiteboard with the pictures of the four subjects. The gang decides to do a points Hail Mary. So at the party, Michael creates a sinkhole during his magic show, supposedly by accident, and Brent falls in. Instead of saving him, Simone and John decide to leave him, and Chidi decides to help but falls in as well. Eleanor and Michael bring the two of them to the office and confirm that they are in the bad place. And Chidi challenges Brent to understand that he has been a bad person. As Brent seems about to articulate a last minute epiphany, time runs out on the experiment and the two of them are frozen. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this is the kind of episode that's like your specialty, the prelude to 
things that are coming. And so what did you love here in this episode? Well, I would say my favorite line in the episode is at the very end when Janet brings Eleanor a margarita and Eleanor <laughs> says, it's zero o'clock in the sky somewhere. <laughs> I I thought that was really a great moment. And, you know, with some of our fellow co-hosts, we have a great love of margaritas and Especially when you're in Florida, it's zero o'clock in the sky somewhere. <laughs> All they needed was the guac bar to make the whole thing complete. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think my favorite line was toward the beginning when Janet was discussing also what would happen right after the end. Uh, just after midnight, in order to reset my processing power, I will be violently eating my Janet babies. I advise <laughs> no one look directly at me. <laughs> yes, that that was great. And... I think my other favorite line was Brent is the opposite of donuts. He's a toilet full of broccoli <laughs> as the opposite of donuts, which is great. Like, I think that's actually the perfect opposite for donuts. <laughs> do, you, do you like donuts or broccoli, Rebecca? I like both donuts and broccoli, but the uh, image of a toilet full of broccoli is pretty unappealing. Um, yes, absolutely. And generally, if given the choice between a donut and broccoli, I will go for the donut. <laughs> now, this being a couple of days after Purim, I have seen crossover things of savory and sweet hamantash and pizzas or things like that. And I don't think I've ever had a broccoli donut nor seen or even like seen broccoli ice cream. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, we went to this restaurant once, which was an all vegetarian restaurant. And one of the items on the menu was a broccoli hot dog. It was a hot dog made out of broccoli. It sounds horrible, but it was delicious. <laughs> You know, donuts, uh, now I'm just thinking uh, we're like a mini theme, if by theme you can say something that was mentioned twice, because uh, when they were debriefing or waiting for the, the sinkhole thing to, you know, to play out, uh, it was we could have had Chidi fall in right or a cute baby panda or maybe, you know, like a box of donuts. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love the thought that they, <laughs> that's something they would do, jump into a sinkhole and rescue donuts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Food is an important theme on this on this podcast for sure. Definitely. Or on this in this show, I guess, in general. Yeah. I had to look up some stuff. I don't know about you. Like, did you know who Richie Sambora was? Yes. Did now that was by you or not by your like culture whisperers at home? No, I don't have any culture whisperers at home. I have a teenager who's like only interested in like D D and Star Wars. And so if it's not that, he's very uninterested. But I have, you know, I, I enjoy my own pop culture things by myself. So and talking to co-host Sari, she's she's also one of my pop culture whisperers for sure. So can you explain to me why Richie Sambora's watch would be particularly significant? That I actually don't know. And I didn't look it up, but I'm sure somebody out there could send us a tweet or something and, and tell us. I did also have to look up. I learned what hot goss and relevant AF mean. <laughs> I'm very proud of you. <laughs> well, you got to hand these things down. Did you Did you catch those? The, those I actually did know what they meant, so I'm good. Is that from your LA phase? <laughs> you know, in my work, I hang out with a lot of teenagers, so I think they're past talking like that, but at some point they all did. <laughs> I think my former teenagers, they they tell me what these things mean, but mostly with the, it's not how I talk, but, but, but I can understand. I can pass in that world if I need to. Yeah. Not pass. I can talk in that world if I need to. 
understand yes. that world? I don't know. So, wow. So, um, Oh, the other thing I'd say was the there at the at the parting at the sinkhole. I thought this was a lovely little burn. Look, I know everything's really scary right now, but I just have to say it. That was the most boring breakup I've ever seen. <laughs> You're like, thanks. That's very which I like to also, yeah, which I liked actually because it was sort of a heavy moment. It was a nice way to, to to take a heavy moment. And I was also just going to say, and this is my own attempt to get points, which I will now ruin by actually searching for information I should already know. I felt like a ton of this episode was carried on like just the facial expressions of, uh, you know, new humans. So Kirby Howell Baptiste, who is Simone, and we've got Brandon Scott Jones, who is John, and Ben Caldike, I think is his name, is Brent. And wow, I just thought, you know, the lines are good, but I just thought the way they make those characters just a little more interesting by by just the look on their face, even while, while other people were talking, I thought was cool. And I've been thinking about it, I guess, because of our our last conversation with Kirsten Mann talking about costumes. You know, the costumes do so much making the storytelling efficient and compact and, and faces do too. You just get a lot. I found myself really like finding particularly John and Brent to be super more interesting than I would have thought just watching them, watching their facial expressions, where their face settles into and, and when they, you know, just with eyebrows kind of carry just, you know, about to make a decision or blurt something out. Yeah. No, they, I mean, one of the things about this show is just all of the incredible actors who are on it. And the I was actually listening to a podcast today that had nothing to do with The Good Place, but they were talking to someone who plays sort of the sidekick on the show. And she was saying, like, now in the show that she's on, they're sort of developing those characters a little bit more. And I think one of the incredible things about The Good Place is just all of the ways in which the characters are so developed and all of the different sort of backstories and personalities and incredible act that they all have. And she described it as main character energy, which I think is right. Like even the non-main characters have some main character energy. Yeah, 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 it's cool. And I'm sure we'll kind of get into that, particularly around Brent today, but it's super interesting. So you want to take us into a thematic exploration, Rebecca? Sure. So actually, I came out with two themes, one of which I texted you about and one of which will be a surprise for you. So the first thing is I was very struck when Brent is in the hole and they're trying to figure out, like, what should we do? And John and Simone are like, we're out of here. And they get in the Escalade, which is, you know, just a nice touch. But Chidi is like, he's a person in a hole, right? Like, what he would do, what Brett would choose to do is irrelevant. Whether or not he's a good person is irrelevant. He says, you know, the bare minimum is just to care a little bit about the people around you. And that made me think of the piece in Exodus in the Torah portion of Mishpatim, which we read a few weeks ago, the idea that you have to, if you see your enemy in the road and their donkey has fallen down, you have an obligation to lift your enemy's donkey. And the interesting thing I think about this rule is not that if you see your enemy in the road with their donkey, that you have to do it for them. But in fact, you're supposed to do it together. So you and your enemy together help lift up the donkey in the road. And you can't just say that person's a bad person. So I'm going to leave them 
to suffer and leave their donkey to suffer. It's kind of like what Chidi said, right? He's a person in a hole. I got to go get him, even if I don't like him. And the same thing I think is true with the donkey, right? You have to help your enemy lift the donkey, even if you don't like your enemy. And, but you don't have to, you don't have to go, you have to go out of your way, but not completely. Your enemy has to help you. So if they stomp off and say, I will not, I will definitely not help you then you're kind of off the hook. But really, you're supposed to do it together because I think, you know, one of the things that the Torah is often asking of us is to try to build community and to try to be our best selves, go against maybe our initial instinct, which might be not to help our enemy and be better and and help our enemy. And it doesn't say like, you have to then become best friends and go off into the world together, but you have to do something to help. And I think that Chidi is really trying to live that out here, even though he also falls in the hole. Yeah, wow. And and now are you applying that here to, is there a sort of width that you think is going on here or or not necessarily? There's less of a width here, although I do think that there's a, right, Chidi's just going to get the rope and help him to get out, except he doesn't. But I do think there is some question about like width First of all, overall in the show, the way that all four of them, the four main characters, whether they like each other or not, sort of understand that they're all in this together. They end up liking each other, of course, but at least in the beginning. But I think also when Chidi tries to get Brent later on in the in the episode to understand that he's truly a bad person and that he should sort of have this understanding of himself, Chidi, out of all of them, it seems to feel like this sense of wit that he has an obligation to help someone be better, do the right thing, et cetera. Chidi out of all of them is not inclined to just like leave people in the road. And I guess in that sense, it's really nice that they end up, you know, briefly in the hole together. And does that make you think of the West Wing thing? You know, I did think of the West Wing and I thought maybe, you know, I don't need to bring this into this, into this podcast, but you have that classic Josh Leo scene, right? A guy falls in a hole and the friend comes down and says, you know, I've been here before and I know the way out. And, you know, there's also a classic understanding of empathy. There's actually a great Brene Brown animated video about this, about empathy being someone who can sort of get in the hole and sit with you and just kind of be there and say like, wow, that does suck or whatever it is, whatever it is that you that you need um, in, in that moment. And so I do think Chidi in particular is a lot about Let's do this together, right? Even with Eleanor early in the show, he's like, we're going to do it together, right? You're going to, we're going to help you become a better person together. Well, and, and I think it's neat that in a way they play this off against the episode in season one where, where Chidi kind of struggles with the width, the, the episode about kind of the, the happiness pump or the happiness suck, I guess, where, where he's like, I know that my duty is to help you, but it, but <laughs> you know, you make this so horrible that I just like want to avoid it. And, and, and he articulates that. And here he takes someone who's so much more odious than Eleanor was even at that point. And somehow manages to get in the hole, which is, he doesn't seem to struggle in this particular case at all. And nor is he really dialoguing. He's not trying to sort of walk halfway, you know, with or toward Brent either. In the end, he's like, look, you're, you're bad. I just have to do this. (laughs) Well, one of the interesting things is, I think, the way in which we see how much Chidi has grown in this episode, because I think early Chidi, if he had seen, you know, Simone get in the car and walk away and drive away, he would have been paralyzed about, 
you know, should he have gone with them? Should he have chased after them? Should he have helped them become better people and left Brent in the hole because Brent is a bad person? He would have played out the moral dilemma so much that he probably wouldn't have done anything. And here he is able to see like the person, even though, you know, Simone isn't, is being a bad person and has gone off. He's able to see like Brent, the person in front of him is the person that needs the help and deals with him first. And I think that shows a lot of growth on the part of Chi. Yeah, and and as you're saying that, it's making me think how how cool the writers have brought us along because you know we love Simone. She's brilliant. She's funny, and and in the previous episode, she was really the one who kind of called bullshit on the whole thing about how much attention they're paying to Brent's growth. And, you know, we like that. And here, somehow they make us, I think, kind of want to hang in there with Brent or at least see what's going to happen. And so I think that's cool that they sort of, they've sort of pushed our allegiance maybe to uh, Simone's point of view. And they, they messed with us a little bit and, you know, put her reputation on the line, which is kind of cool. And the other thing I'm thinking is that the kind of Kantian thing that Chidi expresses about this, which is like, I just have a duty. It has nothing to do with how I feel about you. And and apparently, I think what he's saying is that it has nothing to do with whether I think like I'm going to actually be able to succeed in changing you. I just have this duty. And I think that it, it reminded me of this thing about, in Kant, the classic thing about the the lie, the police come and ask you if so-and-so is in the house, not the police or the, you know, the secret police or the criminals who want to kill someone in your house. And can you lie about whether they're there? And in Kant's apparent position being that you just have to, you have to tell the truth no matter what the consequences are. And Chidi ends up in the hole there, which is the bad, the worst idea. It's completely not helpful. Unlike the West Wing or Brene Brown, there's no value to his He doesn't know how to get out. He doesn't know how to get out. It takes a little sort of a miracle to get them out. And I, and I love how they play that through. And it made me well, want to well, ask. One of the oh, interesting yeah. things always about, I mean, just about the whole, but in, in general, it's like, they're already dead. What, why is he holding on? Why does he just let go and see what happens? Like he's already dead. <laughs> and and they, they, they have this sort of like life or death thing, but the, it's of no consequence because they're already dead. <laughs> in the, in the next episode. <laughs> I just, it's, I wonder how much they think about the fact that they're dead, right? Like I, I obviously this is a television show, so yeah. <laughs> but, but I think about this question of like, if you're wandering around the good place or the bad place disguised as the good place and you like, feel sentient and alive do you think of yourself as being alive or do you constantly remember that you're dead and then and i just thought about that when brent and gd are like holding on for dear life to the side of the hole i'm like but you're already dead right and that, i mean we saw that from the sinkhole at the very beginning that like nothing was going to happen to you right he, they eventually got him out of the hole and it was no big deal but it's just funny because they have this like it seems in the moment to Chidi like a life or death struggle but they're already dead so it's uh yeah it supports my hypothesis that this show is not at all about death and people who are not alive yeah i'm sure that's it's either brilliant or just from duh magazine you know glaringly obvious <laughs> we'll see <laughs> i was gonna ask you something which is i think there's this classic thing and i'm gonna be totally out of my element here in the new testament where Jesus contrasts the 
the limitations of love your neighbor with the expansive idea of love your enemies. And and it seems to me that the the Torah that you're quoting does not say love your enemies and nor does Chidi, but it just says that you have duties. And I think this goes to, you know, kind of a really important question about what's supposed to to lead to what? Is it just that our circle of concern has to go to people? Is it like enemy, enemy? And also, there really is no discussion here about love or or feelings about the matter. Right. I, I mean, I don't think the Torah is arguing that you have to love your enemy. I, I don't think that's something that the Torah truly argues at all, you know, in, in almost any case. But the Torah does argue about yeah. the dignity of every human being and B the fact that you have some form of obligation to humanity, whether you like them or not. And I think about at the Passover Seder, when we take wine out of our cups in memory or recognition, the Egyptians who died, right? And those are people that enslaved us. And those are clearly our enemies. And yet we do something at the Seder to recognize kind of the basic humanity and the fact that people died and people suffered, even at the same time where we're not like, and we will all forgive and love Pharaoh forever. That's not, that's not our project. And I think there are places, like if you think about, you know, the AME church shooting where many of the people in the community got up and talked about forgiving the person who shot their relatives and killed their relatives. And I, I don't think Judaism, well, we believe in forgiveness for sure, I don't think Judaism says like, yes, you know, love your enemies. You can. I mean, there's nothing. Can. There's nothing against it, but it doesn't say you have to. Yet another thing I was going to ask you is I, I seem to recall that there is in, in halakha, in Jewish law, some kind of definition of who this enemy is. Do you have a sense for that? You know, I don't. I didn't. I did not delve that deeply into it to to look at that to look at that piece but i can just imagine it being sort of like your neighbor who annoys you right or like somebody who did something mean to you in business or unethical to you in business what we're talking about i think is someone in your community it's not like your existential enemy right or mm -hmm. like you know some politician that you hate it's really someone it feels to me you know again i didn't i did not look it up but it feels to me like this is someone that you interact with semi-regularly, but who you don't like their ethics or their, you know, the way that they treat you or any of those things, or you got in a fight about something, not necessarily someone who has like, you know, it's not Pharaoh. We're not necessarily talking about Pharaoh. Hmm. Yeah, I like how you're saying that, because I, I think the, the Torah is using the language of your enemy and therefore specific to you, you the guy who's walking around and sees an animal and is stretching you a bit because like, how do you know that this animal belongs to your, to your enemy? But at the same time, I think sometimes the Torah uses enemy to refer to like what you say, like mortal enemies or moral enemies. So you, you, you did a nice synthesis on that. I, hey. yeah. Sometimes you just make things up and it works out. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's the Chavruta process of uh, learning together for sure. Yeah, for real. You know, I, I don't know if this is the other thing you were thinking of, but there's this text in Pirkei Avod, and I, I think we've referred to it here before, which talks about, and who is it by? I've got it in a literal book and not just my electronic. So, so I was thinking about this teaching in Pirkei Avod, which 
comes right after the teaching about get yourself a, a teacher and a, and a chaver, like a, a learning or growth companion. And right after that, it's Nitai Ha'arbeli, who says that you should keep far from a bad neighbor and not become friends with an evil person. And do not despair of divine retribution, I guess, or whatever paper, you know, somehow that'll leave it out somehow, which I don't believe literally, but, and I think that I've understood this to be partly a question of, is it risky to you to be near people who are like Brent? And it doesn't seem like, Chidi doesn't seem to be considering that at all. You know, you were saying how he might have the dilemma of like, is it, is it better for him to go either, you know, sort of continue his project with Simone and John or not. But one thing that's cool about Chidi's personal philosophy and his Kantian thing is that since he's so tied to it as a, as an idea, like he can't really be made, he can't really come under bad influences. I think we've seen him as like impervious. People try to talk to him, talk him out of his Kantian thing all the time, but he won't. He'd just say, look, this is my philosophy and I'm sticking to it. I thought that was a kind of noteworthy that this question of the enemy being a bad person for you to, to, to touch because of what it might do to you seems to be real. And maybe the Torah is trying to override that and say, look, in this, in circumstances, you know, not that you should hang out with your enemy once, you know, and go get a beer together after you've rescued the donkey. Well, but one of the things that's, I think, the good place is pushing back on that a little bit, which is like, they're all in it together, whether it's your enemy or not, that, that they're going to succeed or fail as a team. It's not that if Chidi improves, he gets to go to the good place and the rest of them will go to the bad place, right? It's an, it's an all or nothing thing. And so actually, in the good place, at least, you have an obligation to help your enemy to actually do more than raise your enemy's donkey, but actually like help them be a better person. And maybe there's something in there about this idea of if you raise your enemy's donkey, your enemy might like soften a little bit and say like, huh, if my enemy can help me, like maybe they shouldn't be my enemy anymore. But I guess I am just, I'm struck by the idea in that, that all of their fates are very, very tied together in a way that I think like th there are, there are times in the Torah when the fate of the Jewish people is tied together, right. Thinking about Egypt, although each person individually, I guess, decides whether or not to leave. And then thinking about like Yom Kippur, where we ask for our own personal forgiveness, right? Like our fate isn't necessarily tied to the fate of someone else, as opposed to most of the time in the good place where it's kind of an all or nothing thing. Like, are we all going to succeed? or Are we all going to fail? Hmm. So I don't think I had watched this episode for a very long time and possibly not since the first time I had watched it. And as I was trying to reconstruct my memory of it and knowing kind of what the cliffhanger was, I kind of remembered it differently. I remembered it as, and, and I, I, I didn't really remember it this way because it's pretty clear, but I sort of remembered it as somebody else fell into the pit and the question was whether Brent was going to rescue them. And I was thinking to myself, like, that would have been the test if if Chidi or especially if like Simone had fallen into the into the sinkhole and it would Brent have come to them? Because if, like, if Eleanor's whole thing was like, all right, so has the group bonded enough that that any of them would come to each other's aid? And I was wondering, like, why they didn't write it like that? Why didn't they put him in a situation where like even Brent would rescue someone? Yeah. It's an interesting question. And I think it it still goes to the question of sort of the individual versus the, that that you can't spend too much time on Brent, 
mm-hmm. because everybody is somehow intertwined. So if the group had all together decided, okay, we hate this guy, but we're all going to think like Chidi, we're just going to drag him out this one last time and carry him, that would have gotten the group points. It wouldn't necessarily have have proved anything about Brent's. Right, I don't think it would have. It would have proved something about everybody else only. Yeah, that's interesting. And I guess Brent is not... But Brent would get to come along. Yeah, and he's pretty ungrateful that Chidi went in. All he could see is that like this idiot jumped in here, not like this idiot jumped here to try to help me. I do like how he says, I've got a hell of a lawsuit on my hands. <laughs> I'm going to freaking own this place. <laughs> that was a good line. So can I do the other? Yeah, tell us do, what the can other. Can I do the uh, other thing that I was thinking about? Yeah, what was the other? The other thing that I was thinking about was Brent, actually, since we're on the topic of Brent. At the very, very end, right when he's having this epiphany, and maybe this is really for next week's or next week's podcast, but this idea that there are moments in our tradition where people have epiphanies that change them. And this is something that Rabbi Sharon Browse has talked about extensively at various times and has taught me about, but this thinking about when Jacob goes to sleep and has his dream of the angels going up and down the ladder, and then he wakes up and he says, you know, God was in this place and I didn't know. Or Mm. when Moses goes out and sees his people being abused by the Egyptian taskmasters and kills the taskmaster, right? That he has this epiphany that his people are enslaved. And presumably he's been watching them be enslaved for many years, but it's really at that moment that he sort of realizes that this is this is what's happening. And that there are just a couple of moments when people like Brent, like you can, as you were saying about the facial expressions, you can see it in Brent's face that he's all of the thoughts that are going through his head, right? He's about to realize that he's a bad person and he's about to apologize and that that is going to change him and change, you know, the course of his, I, I can't say life, his, <laughs> his existence. Right. And, and yeah. that when, when, you know, Moses realizes that his people are enslaved and realize the injustice of this, of slavery that's the thing that sets Moses on a course to become the leader of the Jewish people. And same with Jacob realizes at that moment that God is with him, right? When he wakes up from his dream, that God is with him. So would you say those biblical instances are kind of like Brent's and that they're both like turning points, they're ethical turning points for the person, like I was a schmuck until now. And, and that's what I'm waking up to. Or I guess for for Moses in particular, it's that he's waking up to the fact that his world is filled with injustice and that and that it's not just about I mean, in some ways, it's also a little bit the Purim story when Queen Esther finally realizes that she's the only one who can save the the people, right, that that she's not going to be insulated from Haman's decree, boo, from Haman's decree by being in the palace. And so she realizes, like, actually, there's a larger injustice at work here. And, and Moses, I think, realizes that, too. And Jacob's is not as much about injustice as it is about his relationship with God. But I think this idea that what what you're realizing is, is that the world is bigger than the one that you're currently inhabiting. And I think that's a little bit what's going on with Brent, too, which is like, I'm a bad person. I've affected people beyond myself i've i've made the world harder for people or worse for people and i have to come to terms with that in my in my afterlife 
Hmm. You know, for Brent, at least, they packed a lot of stuff into that last couple minutes of the episode. And this this amazing callback to we're really in the bad place. And if that's what they're both believing, it's also really interesting, too. Like, it, it makes me wonder, is, is what's going on in Brent's head, because he doesn't really say it out loud, like, oh, like, it's my fault we're here? Or how do you unpack his... Well, it's hard to know because we don't see the end of his his revelation. We don't know. Look, it could be, right, that he's having a revelation only about himself. You know, if if we suspend the idea that we know what happens next, there's a variety of of other options. But when you think about the idea of epiphany or things sort of like falling into place, one of the things I think about is like you're starting to see a world beyond your own doors or beyond your own head or beyond your own community and say like, huh, things are happening in the world that either I affect or that affect me. Mm. And probably, I mean, Rabbi Sharon Browse, I'm sure would talk about the, that I affect part and, and frame it in terms of what I, what I have been doing up till now or have not been doing and what I, what I could or probably should be doing, which is in a way, like that's what's consequential for us. But we know probably even without fast forwarding is we know that something about the destiny of this experiment and therefore all of human existence is going to depend on what's about to come out of Brent's mouth. Of course, he doesn't exactly know that. He's probably the, the least one tracking what this is all about. And since he thinks he's already headed for the best, the best place. Well, and also one of the, one of the things that's so interesting about this, I think is like, if, his epiphany comes too late almost and and sometimes that's how life works right we don't always get everything you know the minute we figure it out we can't always do all the things we need to do or you know make all the amends we need to make like sometimes sometimes it's too late yeah you know michael's philosophy which he doesn't articulate here in this episode but it's usually that it's the next moment that matters. I mean, that's essentially what he said at the end of the last thing to bad Janet. It was like, it's it's not about how bad they've been. It's about are they trying to be better? And which I have always named as my as my big question. Kind of goes to this idea too that that uh, comes in our classic text about tshuva that you could, you know, do tshuva a moment before you die, and that would somehow matter. And but I think the other thing that that interesting about that is like Chidi, in this moment, which again he doesn't either realize that this is like the very last moment or the last moment before something. I mean, he really abandons all subtlety or kind of educator posture and just is like, I'm just going to tell you <laughs> until you get it. This is who you are. This is who you are. And, you know, we've seen in several of the episodes of this season how people try to tell people who they are and, and how hard it is to do that directly. And and I am really fascinated about how we believe that Chidi could speak to Brent this way, like at that moment. And maybe that's what an epiphany is when you sort of are lucky enough to run into. It can be this, you know, Jacob Moshe, these are observations they make, but in the plot here, it's somebody spoon feeding you the epiphany and you're being willing to take it yeah can i say my other favorite line from this episode that i wrote down but forgot to say of course you know they're discussing what to do in the party and i i think it's eleanor says i hope our early successes make up for the mess we've become like facebook or america and i just thought that was 
that was a great line, especially like, obviously they didn't know what was going to happen with Twitter, but you know, you hear people talking about whether or not to get off Twitter and so much of what I'm not on Twitter to begin with. So, you know, whatever, but so much of what people are saying about Twitter is like, it used to be this great place where like people could have conversations and now it's like a white nationalist tellhole, but people are reluctant because they remember kind of what it, what it used to be and the potential of the thing, right. And the, the potential of Facebook or the potential of America that, or the potential of, of this experiment and, you know, not to get like, I don't want us to get, you know, hate mail, but everything that's going on in Israel right now, right. Sort of like the, we, we hold on to an ideal about, about Israel and what it can be and what we, what we hope it would be, even as we're sort of steering down a real mess. Yeah. You know, it's, it's this week in particular, I think about what Facebook is bringing to me because it still is the place where I find really important articles to read that people recommend or these kind of inspiring pictures. Like I love celebrating Purim or Hanukkah on Facebook and just watching my feed be full of people kind of owning and and making something beautiful and fun and, and meaningful out of something that's going on, out of something Jewish. And so I'm still... I'm still grateful. I, I re- probably that doesn't balance out all the bad things that that also happen there that get catalyzed. That's my corner of the world. The America thing really, I think, lands differently from when they broadcast this, which must have been 2019, and which of course is what everybody is is thinking about now. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that 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 is sort of another layer of this question. Like, do you continue to even really to to your first teachings, which were when you're pissed at someone or something, or even you have a, an overall difficult judgment on it, do you still kind of continue to put the work in to try to make it work or make it stand up? And and I think that could be a helpful framing. Like, so in other words, what, what I feel like you started with was the Torah doesn't say, you know, don't pretend there's no difference between a friend and an enemy. Don't pretend there's no difference between someone you respect and someone you, you know, you can't stand, you have no respect for, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean there's not some value to trying to work on that and at least value for you, even if it doesn't lead to that transformation. Yeah. I mean, I think you're not obligated to be best friends with your, with your enemy, but you are obligated to see them as a person. I loved Jason being coherent. That was great. He was, he made two coherent points and they're all like, Oh my God, you know, with his, with his various football analogies, which like, you know, you don't understand pop culture. I don't really understand football. So I'm sure they were very wonderful, coherent analogies that I did not get, but I just, you know, I loved sort of their, their shock at that. And then my my other favorite Eleanor line, which I think is just like a great line. She says, you know, I never played a game before unless I knew I could win or I could bribe the judge that like she, (laughs) she, she goes into this with like real confidence. And now that we see that wavering a little bit and all the ways in which she's like, well, maybe I wasn't like fully prepared for this, for this activity and for the stakes of this, of this game. And then, you know, I guess the other, the other one I enjoyed was, I guess it was John who says, oh, you all look great. You could work the coat check at the Met Gala. (laughs) It was either him or Tahani, but I think, I think, I think it was John, but that was just mean and funny. Now, wait, so how close are you right like right now to the Met and the place for the Met Gallery? Pretty close. So if anyone, you know, anyone wants to visit, you can you can visit and you can see the Met. And um, I think they're, they have like a whole tent and everything 
for arrivals for the Met Gala. So like regular people off the street definitely can't just walk over and see it. But you can go to the Met, which is a wonderful place. Uh, yeah, just going back to, to Jason, you would think that Tahani would also be a person who doesn't really understand football analogies. And yet she's the one who, you know, is able to name that this is a coherent. It's surprisingly thing. coherent. <laughs> And yeah, I mean that he, because uh, usually his, in a way, the uh, the sinkhole is is absolutely like a Molotov cocktail. I mean, that's really what Michael does. <laughs> it's a Jason move in that kind of way. But the football fans will remember that. I think I think it was a year ago in 2022 where there was uh, what seemed like a game-ending Hail Mary type pull victory from defeats between, I think it was Buffalo and Kansas City. And then like in the last like minute and a half, they were like, Three or four it was exactly like this, where they kept having to throw more, more last gap things, which is a yeah. fun game to watch at the time. Yeah, I just love the title of this episode. As oh, a yeah? really, as a certified introvert, hell is other people is great. So help is other people is just a nice little tie. Oh, I that. totally missed that. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, and isn't that that whole thing with, is it is it uh, Sartre or whatever? Isn't there that thing? Camus, Sartre, isn't there some thing that they've sometimes referred to? Am I wrong about that? Isn't that a line from something? All right. Great to talk to you, Rebecca. Thank great you. Great to talk to you, too. I can't believe how close we are to the end. We are close to the end of the series. If you have any requests or ideas for how we should wrap up our Tove podcast when we complete season four, send them our way to Tove at ToveGoodPlace.com or by social media at ToveGoodPlace. Subscribe so you don't miss out on any of our episodes and give us a good rating or a shout out so more people who love The Good Place or some fun Torah can find Tove. As always, we've got show notes on this episode and other resources like explanations of our terminology and texts and links to great Jewish learning. It's all at tovegoodplace.com. Rebecca Rosenthal is on Instagram at Rabbi Rebecca Bakes. And I'm John Spirisavet on the web at rabbijohn.net, on Twitter at rabbijs3, and occasionally on TikTok at ravjohn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tove. Now go learn more about something good. Bum 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 bum